pray that your spirit would be here as our guide and our teacher this morning. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A couple of years ago, five years ago now, back in 2013, uh, the uh, publication The Atlantic had an article, and this was a, its title, When a Christian Foundation Interviewed College Nonbelievers About How and Why They Left Their Faith. The author, <clears throat> Larry Alex Taunton, concluded this. He said, perhaps the most surprising aspect of this whole study was the lasting impression many of these discussions made upon us that these students were, above all else, idealists who longed for authenticity. And having failed to find it in their churches, they settled for a non-belief that, while less grand in its, in its promises, felt more genuine and attainable. Authenticity and genuineness, these matter a great deal. And I would hope that in church, that's the place, above all else, where we can be the most honest and that our church will also be the safest place for us to be honest, whether that be with our struggles, with our fears, our doubts, our troubles, our faults, our mess-ups, what have you. The Psalms help us to do just that, to be honest. They cover a whole range of emotions, sorrow and fear and anger and frustration and bewilderment, as well as joy and hope and satisfaction. They express these emotions, and they also help us to channel them properly. That is to say, they give us a vehicle to sing about not just what we are currently feeling, but what we want to feel. So they shape us as we sing them. You see, the Psalms are first and foremost a songbook uh, for us in our worship. They allow us to be thoroughly honest uh, in worship, honest with God, honest with one another. And they treat our feelings not as a problem to be solved, but as raw material to be molded into something beautiful. And they do this by giving us stuff to sing. Well, the psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 3, is what we call a lament. That is to say, it sets before God a situation where we need his help because we're in trouble. Did you know that there are more laments in the psalms than any other kind of song? I don't think our hymn books uh, match this kind of balance, but never mind that. Uh, um, rather, think instead, what does this tell you about God? What does this tell you about the kinds of things God likes to hear from us in our worship? Now, the laments come in two different kinds. There are what we call community laments, and they're dealing with troubles faced by the, the people of God as a whole. Uh, and then there are individual laments where the troubles face a particular member of the people. And that's what we have in this psalm. Well, and thank you, Jenilyn, for uh, reading the title of the psalm. I appreciate that. Uh, in the title of the psalm uh, that Jenilyn read, uh, we learn that it comes from David, the king of Israel. And as a songwriter, uh, he's usually there as the ideal Israelite. Uh, here he shows us how the ideal believer encounters dire distress and danger by prayer, by prayer that we sing together. And singing a composition takes it much further into the heart than merely reading it aloud. Uh, it's not natural to trust God in hardship. And yet the Psalms provide us with a way of doing just that. And they enable us who sing them to trust God better as a result of our singing. And by singing it together, we reinforce each other in our trust. 
So this is a psalm that helps us to be honest about something that can be like the elephant in the room, namely that life is really, really, really hard. It hurts sometimes. In The Princess Bride, the other bit of the canon that I hope I've inspired uh, you with, uh, the, dread the Dread Pirate Roberts says to Buttercup, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. The world is a hard place, uh, and we sin, and we're sinned against, and most of our experiences are some mix of those two. Now, I've said more than once that this is a song to be sung in our worship, and I just said as well that this is an individual lament, and we ought to be asking, well, how does that work? I mean, we're singing it together, and yet it's about one person in particular. Well, I'll come back to that in a few minutes. But first, let's look at some details of this psalm. This is the first psalm that has a title, and it gives particular circumstances. The title ties the psalm with the occasion of Absalom's rebellion against his father David in 2 Samuel 15 and 16. And that makes the whole thing concrete. Uh, we have an actual set of events, and we uh, see how genuine faith handles really, really dangerous and frightening situations. Uh, our crises were, are usually going to be a whole lot less dire, uh, uh, but we can learn from them. Uh, we, we can be, uh, see how ours are similar and also different. Now let's uh, just go through the, the bits of the psalm, uh, a, uh, a couple of verses at a time, and see how the whole thing hangs together. The psalm opens in verses 1 and 2 with what we can see. Uh, in this case, it's a desperate situation. You see how it repeats the word many. O oh Lord, many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Now, the word salvation here, and generally in the Old Testament, and in the New as well, describes both physical and spiritual deliverance, deliverance from some present danger. Uh, and this comes because God is always concerned to, uh, for his people and always committed to his people. And the enemies are saying this about his soul, that there's no salvation for him in God. They're implying that his sins are so bad that there's no way God is going to save him. Well, let's see something of the background of this in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 15 and 16. Uh, in 2 Samuel 15 and verse 6, Absalom, who's one of David's sons, has uh, carried out a plan, uh, and he, uh, as the text tells us, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So he's going to usurp his father David. He wants to be king in David's place. Uh, that's, that's fine if, if you uh, inherit the throne after your father dies, but... To hurry him along is, uh, you know, uh, very bad. Um, <clears throat> so here's, uh, here's uh, uh, he organizes a, a rebellion, and, and in verse 12 we read this. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Now that sounds a lot like how many are my foes, doesn't it? Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, uh, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house, and the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. 
And all his servants passed by him, and all the Carathites, and all the Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath. Now, it's important that you appreciate that the Carathites, the Pelathites, and the Gittites are non-Israelites. You could call them mercenaries if you like, but they're loyal to David, even though they're not from Israel, uh, Philistines and Greeks and whatever. Uh, these passed on before the king. Then the king said to Etai, the Gittite, who would be the commander of this group, uh, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you're a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Etai answered the king, Ha! As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. David said to Etai, Go then, pass on. So Etai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. Uh, the uh, geography is this. If you're in Jerusalem, you cross a, a little uh, valley and then you go up the Mount of Olives, which is a long ridge that's, ju that's just to the east of Jerusalem. And as you cross over that ridge, then, then you get into the area where it's very dry because there's a rain shadow right there. So that's, that's where David is headed to escape over across the desert and to the, across the Jordan River into the area that, is, uh, that, that we consider part of modern-day Jordan. <clears throat> and then in, in uh, 2 Samuel 16, starting in verse 5, when King David came to the place called Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, uh, the son of Gera, and as he came, he cursed continually. Now, this part of Israel is part of the ancestral inheritance of the tribe of Benjamin, and this guy is a member of the tribe of Benjamin, so he's crossing through there to get over, uh, over the Jordan River. And this guy, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, which was also the tribe that produced Saul, uh, has something to say. Uh, as a matter of fact, he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Well, that sounds a lot like no salvation for him and God, doesn't it? Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, and Abishai is one of the king's closest bodyguards, Ha! Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursings today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei uh, went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones and flung dust. Well, well what would you say if you were in that situation? How would you feel? Well, and that's what the psalm has asked us to imagine. And then the next part of the psalm helps us to respond in the right way. Verses 3 through 6 rehearse what we believe. Surely, uh, you'd be thinking, has God abandoned me? Well, the right way to answer that is to go back over the ways that God has cared for him in the past. 
uh, and how he was able in faith to sleep peacefully even in the face of danger. You see how he changes the focus from the many foes in verses 1 and 2 to but you, O Lord. In verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord. He answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I'll not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Well, that's what we have to do. We go back over the beliefs that we profess. We uh, profess that God is our maker, that he's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's the ruler of all. And we've, had, we've all had little experiences of this in the past that remind us of that. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, you have Screwtape, who's a senior tempter, and he says this to his nephew Wormwood, who's a junior tempter and, and who's learning the craft, about God, whom he calls, of course, the enemy. And he's talking about how God treats believers. He says, for his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures, you see he hates human creatures, the creatures are to be one with him and yet themselves, namely, uh, uh, sorry, merely to cancel them or assimilate them will not serve. He's prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. He'll set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation, but he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not, in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. During these periods of tough going, when we feel that God is absent, we have to go back and remind ourselves of those communications of God's presence, to use Screwtape's words, of the, of the emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation that we once enjoyed, because they serve to build our faith. And these past experiences continue to build, that build our confidence for the present, enabling us to walk by faith and not by sight. And you notice that we sing of it because, as I've said, that goes deeper down than just good thoughts. And in a crunch, how we need our feelings to be nurtured as deeply as we can get them. Well, now we get to the last part, verses 7 and 8, what we pray for. <clears throat> and here we turn to the Lord and ask him to save as he has done in the past. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. When he asks God to save him in verse 7 and speaks of salvation belonging to the Lord, he's pointing back to the taunt that the enemies had made in verse 2. There ain't no salvation for him in God. In the, but in the real world, it's the Lord's decision and not that of the enemies that makes the difference. So the salvation or rescue 
is God's to give or to withhold according to what he sees fit. And you notice that uh, he carries on the theme from before, that is to say of looking back over what God has done in the past. And what God has done in the past gives confidence for the future. You strike all my enemies uh, on the, the uh, cheek is something that God has done before. Uh, and uh, that's the kind of thing that God does uh, for his faithful is the idea. And the prayer for God's blessing on his people is pretty amazing since most of those people are seeking his life. So their defeat in battle is actually going to be the way in which they receive God's blessing. So then, the psalm gives us a form of prayer that we can sing together to support one another in our troubles and our crises. <clears throat> but uh, let me clarify a few things before I draw my conclusion then. Well, the first thing to clarify is that the psalm, in order for us, for us to sing it, has to be short enough for us to get through, uh, which means that it's going to telescope time. Uh, and here's what I mean by that. If you're not careful, uh, you'll think that the psalm is telling you that you just pray, and then once you've done that, you're expected to feel peaceful. No way. No way. It's not going to happen. The psalm is rather giving us a pattern. It's what we're being shaped to be like. But it, what it doesn't do is tell us how long it's going to take. Uh, in fact, most often we have to go through some pretty excruciating wrestling over a pretty good stretch of time. Well, once we see that, we can see that it's not a problem for the Psalms, even though, of course, it's no fun for us. Uh, the second clarification is to appreciate that uh, prayer is not given to us as a way of avoiding hard work. I mean, after all, once David has prayed this, he and his troops have a pretty serious and dangerous battle to fight. Prayer doesn't replace work. Prayer is what makes work effective. Well, the third thing to clarify comes from the situation that the title points us to, Absalom's Revolt. Now, in 2 Samuel, David's sin with Bathsheba uh, and his murder of Uriah have a lot to do with the family troubles that followed. Uh, and David has not been the ideal parent to Absalom either. Now, David as a person did have to take responsibility for what he did. And we see some of that in 2 Samuel. But this, it, this psalm isn't just about David as a person. Uh, it's a psalm, which means that it, it applies to us as well. And since we're not David, we can, leave, we can uh, recognize that we're not uh, reading this psalm to find David's personal autobiography or prayer journal. Rather, what we can appreciate is that our troubles come to us for a lot of reasons. And sometimes we're at least partly to blame for them. But apparently, God doesn't always think that we have to get all that sorted out before we can pray and ask him for help. You never get the idea that um, God is sitting there on his throne and uh, when he hears me, he says, Oh, you again. Now what have you done? A fine mess you've made this time, isn't it? The thing is, appreciate, every single one of us is a phenomenally gifted human being, gifted particularly at messing up. Uh, what God wants for us is to call on him for help. And if in the long run that means facing up to our faults, well, that's a good thing too. But his fatherly compassion and tenderness are simply beyond human comprehension. 
Now, I want to draw a lesson from the, uh, just, uh, we, we sang about God's kindness in that song just a few minutes ago. We're going to celebrate God's kindness and his welcome, his act, actual enjoyment of our company in just a few minutes. But we should appreciate that that lies behind this psalm as well. So now I want to draw a lesson from the fact that this is a psalm. Now, in the Old Testament setting, the priest who planned and led the worship service decided that it was fitting for the group of people who were gathered there to sing this together. The idea is that God invites his people to bring our cares, our fears, our worries, our dangers, all of them before him in worship. And yet, as I said, this is what we call an individual lament. That is to say, there's one person or one family who's in deep distress, but the family right next to them are doing just fine. Well, uh, if you're uh, the person who's uh, doing just fine, you should recognize that you're doing just fine for the time being. You may, as a matter of fact, find yourself in trouble sooner or later. And through singing this psalm, you've been trained and prepared. But more importantly, what's happening is that in singing this together, we're practicing our common membership in a body when we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. When I sing this, the priest who has asked me to sing this, the pastor who's asked me to sing this in church, is asking me to own the troubles of Mrs. McGillicuddy or Mr. Hardscrabble, to own them as my own. I join with them in bringing these things before the Lord, and we mourn and we rejoice together to sing what God brings next. In fact, I may be a part of God's answer to their prayers. Uh, I never know. But this is what the Lord Jesus has done for us who are Christians. He's taking us, who are uh, Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus, and he's made us a part of his people. You know, he loves it that we're members of a body that we need him and we need each other. And uh, what do we say but thank you, Jesus. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, as we think of the lesson of this psalm, of how you invite us to bring our troubles before you and how you uh, don't even wait for us to sort out all of the reasons for our troubles but to cry to you for help, we give you our thanks. We say to you that you deserve our worship and our adoration, our confidence, more than we can ever express. Lord Jesus, thank you too for one another. Thank you that we can join with one another, that in our prayers we can own one another's troubles. We can support one another, care for one another, and in some cases be the answer to each other's prayers. Lord Jesus, make us faithful to you, make us earnest and caring to one another. And uh, we pray that you would bring honor to yourself through the way that we function as a body. In your name we pray these things. As we continue our worship this morning, we have the opportunity to confess our faith in what we believe. We've been using the Heidelberg Catechism for the past uh, month or so, and we continue to do that this morning. Uh, this gives us words that we can express together of what we believe in Scripture. And so I'm going to ask you the question. You can find it on page 7 of your bulletin, or you can use, uh, use the words that are on the screen for you. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true 
all that God has revealed to us in Scripture. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also. Forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation, these are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. Amen. And that's the sheer grace that we get to experience at this table. I love what Dr. Collins shared this morning as we express and sing and read these laments individually. We also take on and own the crises and the struggles and the hardships that each of us face in our lives. And that's why community is so important. That's why church is important. That's why we gather together every Sunday because God has called his people to be able to be a community, a body of Christ that would rejoice together but also mourn together. And it's at the table we also experience that. This isn't just an individualistic thing that you and I do, that I get to eat the bread and drink the cup. And it's all about me and God and my love for him and be reminded of my, my uh, grace. But in actuality, as you pass the cup to that person sitting next to you, as you pass the bread, you are owning and living life together. And so that as we share and eat together with Christ at the table, we are strengthened by God's grace to be able to live and sing these prayers on our own, to care for one another's burdens, to know and trust that God is going to deliver us because we see that in the past, that Christ has died. He has suffered. He has lamented. Why? For us. His love for us so that we might be in fellowship with Christ, but we may also be in fellowship with one another. And that's the beauty of the table this morning, and that's what I invite you to, that through the, your own crises, but also through the crisis of brothers and sisters that are sitting next to you, we might be able to lift one another up, knowing that Christ is the one who leads us in that. So let me pray for us as we set aside these elements for his glory and for our good. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your son who was not immune to temptation, wasn't immune to his own crisis, his own suffering, and ultimately his death. And it's because of his dying but also rising, Lord, we can have faith and trust and grace that no matter what we go through, Lord, you are with us and that salvation truly belongs to you. So, Lord, I ask that as we eat and drink together, may by your spirit, may we be strengthened in our hearts that no matter what you call us to, Lord, you might remind us of your faithfulness and give us the strength we need to be faithful, not only in the things that you put upon us, but also to be able to support one another as we eat and drink together. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.